This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. I want to apologize for the sound today. I am having some voice problems so I use text-to-speech to make this broadcast. Today I want to play a message by a friend of mine Bernard LaCroix. He was raised in a devout fundamental Baptist family and has unwavering faith in the scriptures. He is concerned about the condition of modern Christianity in general, and Baptist churches in particular. Today he is going to give us a look at how we got to the state we are in. Bernard, welcome to our broadcast, and thank you for the time and study you have put into this subject. I'm glad to be with you today Pierre, and I thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience. It all started in the middle to late 19th century and has gotten worse over the last 150 years or so. By the late 1800s, Baptist churches in the U.S. had noticeably weakened in their adherence to strict church discipline. In a 1907 commentary, Henry Vetta noted, There has been a decline in the discipline maintained among Baptist churches as serious as it is great. In the majority of churches in the cities, exclusions are practically unknown except for some notorious wickedness. Even in cases of notorious wickedness, there is often complete immunity for the offender. Little serious attempt is made to exercise oversight of the lives of members and to hold them to accountability for departures from even a moderate standard of Christian ethics. The place of exclusion has been taken by a new practice, called dropping, by which is meant the simple erasure of a name from the role of membership, no stigma of any kind attaching to the person so dropped, with no inquiry, no charges, and of course no examination or trial. This growing practice threatens to become universal in much less than another half-century, with results on the spiritual efficiency of the churches and the personal piety of their members that cannot fail to be most disastrous. Nothing can explain such disuse of discipline but a general weakening of moral fiber. This is an alarming phenomenon and goes far to offset all that has been recorded of material and spiritual progress. Vetter also pointed out a significant decline in adult baptisms. Owing to the increasing infrequency of revivals and the decline of the older evangelism, the majority of the converts are now received into the churches through the Sunday school and the young people's society. The conversion of adults becomes with every decade increasingly rare. From the 1920s to the 1940s, leading up to World War II, there was a resurgence in spiritual awakenings. Evangelists like J. Frank Norris, Mordecai Ham, Bud Robinson, John R. Rice, J. Wilbur Chapman, R. A. Torrey, Sam Jones, Hyman Appleman, and Oliver B. Green saw many come to faith. These men were great men of God and were responsible for bringing many to Christ. They had the courage to stand against the tide and speak out against the evils of their time. You and I would probably not be where we are today without the heritage we have from them. Many churches, like those led by Norris in Fort Worth, Texas and Detroit, Michigan, grew rapidly. 
These churches served as great evangelistic hubs, emphasizing the first part of the Great Commission, that of evangelizing the world. The missionary efforts that started with them continue today in many, if not most, independent Baptist churches. However, there is no indication of a parallel revival in the teaching of holy living to the church members and training them in the whole counsel of God as described in Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 16. Discipline was minimal, membership standards were low, and many members lacked commitment. As the 20th century began, faith in the scriptures was undermined by progressive theology and the rise of Darwinian evolution. It was also undermined by the multitude of Bible versions based upon the works of Westcott and Hort. This has resulted in a multitude of different Bibles, none of which say the same thing. How can you have faith in the Bible if you don't know which one, if any, are correct? Different Baptist associations slid into doctrinal compromise. For example, the Northern Baptists, known as such until the 1950 rebranding to the American Baptist Convention, had adopted more liberal theological views. Notably, in 1918, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the leader of the prominent Riverside Church in New York, released the manhood of the Master, challenging the divinity of Jesus. In 1926, despite this, the Northern Baptist Convention made the choice not to remove Riverside Church from its ranks. The Southern Baptist Convention was not exempt from this decline in doctrinal soundness. It saw the infiltration of liberal views in the first half of the 20th century. By 1902, J.W. Bailey of North Carolina commented on the diverse theologies within the Southern Baptist Convention, stating, Theologies change every day. Baptists do not stand for formulated dogmas. The movement away from sound doctrine and the influence of secular society caused churches to become more lenient and move away from New Testament precepts. The hard statements against sin and compromise were considered negative and were, therefore, avoided as much as possible. This effort to keep everything positive resulted in a move away from church discipline. Although it started before its time, Tennessee Temple was one of the leaders in this move away from the negative. Its founder said that he endeavored to keep the negative away from his people. As early as 1874, William Whitsett, an educator at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, remarked, It is now very difficult to exclude a person for drunkenness or any other ordinary crime. In 1878, J.C. Hyden, leader of the First Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, penned articles in the Baptist Courier expressing concern over the emerging trend of relaxed discipline. By 1921, Z.T. Cody, the Baptist Courier's editor, observed, Our churches have practically no discipline. As to worldliness and minor offenses, many of our churches do nothing. But what is far worse, our churches often allow the most serious moral transgressions to go unnoticed. Even at times, to save a disturbance in the church, they will grant a minister the letter who, as they know, 
has grossly violated not only the proprieties of life, but the moral law of God. What we dread today more than aught else is a disturbance in the peace of a church. We do not know what is the remedy for this lapsed condition. The cause was churches relying less on spiritual means and more on pragmatic methods like organized programs. The solution is not at all hard to find. It is a return to biblical precepts and methods. There was a shift in focus shifted away from the biblical example and towards efficiency and pragmatism. Pragmatism in church work is employing methods that achieve desired outcomes because they work instead of following the biblical example because it is right. If it works, do it, even if it does not follow the scriptural model. Efficiency was no longer about purity or obedience, but about structured, organized, and logical approaches in church activities. Progressive church leaders believe that modern churches should be grounded not in the authority of scripture, but in science, logic, and structure. They turn to experts like Frederick Winslow Taylor, who transformed management into a science for creating efficient systems. Especially in the larger churches, pastors became CEOs and churches became businesses. In the 1920s, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary introduced Gaines Dobbins as an expert in church efficiency. His 1923 publication, The Efficient Church, gained significant traction. He argued that Jesus' ministry represented the pinnacle of efficiency and that Paul was the foremost expert in religious efficiency. Once a church starts doing things like the world, it embarks on a journey into worldliness, not just in how the church is run, but in the fruit of its labor. The result is seen in the fact that churches began to align more with contemporary thought and wisdom than divine guidance and scripture. Instead of distancing themselves from worldly views, they embraced them. The, the prevalent American values of individuality and consumerism became more important than purity in the churches. They avoided potential confrontations by not insisting on evidence of salvation or practicing discipline. Churches catered to the self-centered tendencies of individuals who were seeking congregations that catered to their personal needs. They reduced spiritual benchmarks, incorporated entertainment, borrowed worldly elements to make Christian music more palatable, toned down sermons, introduced youth ministries that mirrored secular pop culture, and widened generational divides. I believe most of this was motivated by wanting to be accepted by the brethren. By the latter half of the 20th century, this approach gave rise to the seeker-sensitive movement. The principles of a truly converted church membership and discipline became obstacles in the path of this philosophy and the dream of establishing a megachurch. Pastors like megachurches because of the prestige and financial benefits. People like megachurches because they can get lost in them and nobody knows whether or not they are living as the Bible teaches them to live. The idea of a church being a group of pilgrims in a foreign land was replaced by an attitude of how can this church help me to live better in this world. 
As Christians, our real citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. The focus shifted from building strong Christians to only being concerned with reaching the lost. They lost sight of the fact that strong Christians, who are to be salt and light in the word, are key to effectively reaching the lost. Soul winning is important because nothing happens until one is saved. However, once someone is brought to Christ, maturing them for the work of the ministry is essential for a healthy church. Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 12. In 1910, William Poteet, the head of Wake Forest College expressed to the annual Southern Baptist Convention that Baptists held the key to preserving civilization. In 1920, Richard Edmonds asserted, Upon the Baptists of the South may rest the salvation of America and of the world from chaos and from sinking back into the darkness of the Middle Ages. These two statements are true. But churches yielded to the new morality, allowing members to adopt secular lifestyles undermines their ability to accomplish these things. Activities like dating, premarital relations, alcohol consumption, contemporary music, divorce, and bisexual fashion trends infiltrated these spiritually weakened congregations. It is important to remember that America became a great nation because it was founded upon biblical precepts. This only happened because our Baptist ancestors were willing to die for scriptural principles. Too many, in our day, will ignore these principles if following them hinders their goals and desires. J. Edwin Orr, a fundamentalist leader, during his 1935 tour of the South, was taken aback to discover that the behavior of believers mirrored that of non-believers, noting a lack of distinctiveness. From 1935 until 2023, things have not gotten better. The culture of the South is a religious culture, but has no depth. They say they are saved and believe the Bible, but live as if they will never face the Bible's God. William McLaughlin, Jr., in his book Contemporary Revivalism said, Church membership often became a mere rite of passage from Sunday school or youth groups. The necessity of a transformative conversion experience was largely overlooked by both clergy and congregations. There was no emphasis on verifying genuine faith. Any declaration of belief was taken at face value, and the individual's faith was never questioned. If someone says a prayer, regardless of their actions or beliefs, they are told they are guaranteed to go to heaven. Life-altering conversions, like those described in the New Testament, were a rarity. Scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Titus 1 verse 16, and 1 John 2 verse 4 seemed alien to our experiences. There was no rigorous process for admitting members. Any superficial testimony was deemed adequate. Regular attendance wasn't mandatory. Whether you attended weekly or not at all, you were considered a member in good standing. Consequently, with each generation, the proportion of members who were not genuinely converted increased. The old church covenant from the 19th century was displayed on the wall, but it merely served as a historical artifact. 
its tenets were neither imparted nor upheld. People were admitted to church membership without being asked if they agree with the covenant. The church lacked genuine discipleship, holiness, and discipline. Members were exposed to biblical teachings, but it weren't given a comprehensive biblical perspective, and there was a lack of emphasis on authentic discipleship. Biblical precepts, standards, and doctrine were mentioned in sermons, but seldom explained in detail. Mentioning something in a sermon is not the same as preaching or teaching it. Churches began to mirror popular culture, embracing secular tales like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Much like the allegorical frog in boiling water, they mirrored the entertainment industry's gradual moral decline. They lacked a discerning approach. They weren't deeply rooted in biblical teachings. Christians didn't embody the essence of being true followers of Jesus Christ or view themselves as temporary residents in an alien world. Few saw figures like Walt Disney or Ed Sullivan as adversaries of truth. The absence of a church in Disneyland's Main Street wasn't seen as an indication of Disney's secular perspective, which subtly diverted young minds from biblical teachings. The allure of shows like the Disney Hour and the Ed Sullivan Show, which impacted Sunday church attendance, wasn't a major concern for religious leaders. A large portion of preachers emulated admired people like Billy Graham, resulting in sermons that lacked the power to reprimand, convict, or disciple, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. This is in spite of the fact that he is on record saying he is not sure if there is really a hell and saying that he agrees with the Pope on almost everything. He is also on record saying that he would not try to get the people who came forward in his meetings to leave the Catholic Church. Remember, the Catholic Church teaches a false gospel that requires sacraments and works to get into heaven. Baptist churches like this were omnipresent in the American South, leading to its nickname, the Bible Belt. Baptist congregations were pivotal in shaping Southern culture. However, due to their spiritual decline, their influence was minimal, and their societal impact was negligible. Many individuals went through the ritual of accepting Christ during their youth, only to lead lives largely uninfluenced by biblical principles. The rock and roll wave swiftly overtook these churches in the 1950s. Initially, there was some opposition to rock music and its laissez-faire attitude, but this resistance waned rapidly. By the 1960s, the lifestyles of most Baptist young people mirrored those of their non-church-going peers, sharing similar musical tastes and life philosophies. The few Baptist churches that make an effort to remain faithful follow the teachings they learned in their colleges rather than the scriptures. They focus most of their teaching on reaching the lost, which is important, but neglect the building of strong, sound Christians. Churches have continued on the same road in the 21st century as in the 19th and 20th. At the risk of being redundant, let me reword something I said earlier. There's no return to old-fashioned church discipline. 
most Baptist churches primarily served as soul-winning stations rather than fully functioning churches as described in Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 16. There is little to no church discipline and membership standards are low. Being positive with as little controversy as possible is the rule of the day. Everyone seems to be afraid of rocking the boat. Maybe the boat needs to be rocked to wake up Christians to the seriousness of following all of God's precepts, not only those that are comfortable and acceptable to the modern Laodicean church. Now that we have looked at how we got here, we need to take a look at where we are and see which direction we are moving. I can assure you that it is not in the right direction. One thing modern Christians, and in particular American Christians, need to understand is how we got our freedoms. Freedom came into the world through the Christians that founded America. Those of us in Canada and the rest of the free world owe our freedom to the American colonists who were willing to risk their lives to obtain the freedoms found in their constitution, especially those detailed in your Bill of Rights. Although it can be said that the spark of freedom was kindled in England, it didn't become a flame until the American Revolution. America was called an experiment, and no one expected it to work. When it did, freedom spread around the globe. The reason it worked is, it was based upon biblical principles. These were the principles fought for by the Baptists from the time of the Apostles to time of the American Revolution. We have looked at the decline which actually started in the 17th and 18th centuries, but became a major force when Christians did not stand up against the teachings of Darwin and Marx. Darwin used human reasoning to undermine the teachings of Scripture. Marx took this human reasoning and turned it into a militant force to overthrow governments. In America and most of Europe, his methods did not work, so he started a movement in the educational institutions and the new media. There is an important thing we must learn about the left. It never sleeps. If it is defeated, it is only seen as a temporary setback. Leftists go back to the drawing board and concoct another plan. In the 1920s, they tried to take over and were slapped down at the ballot box. That is when they really started taking over our schools. They had already gotten into the universities, but they started moving down to the lower grades and now even reach into preschools. In the religious realm, it is no different. People like William Witsit went to the modernistic schools in Germany and came back to America teaching false doctrine. Witsit was fired from his position at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, but not before he had taught enough German rationalism to others and get them to accept the false things he was teaching. Over time, they were able to infect the SBC schools with their liberal ideas. The independent Baptist movement was started as a result of this slide into liberalism. However, they didn't learn from the problems within the Southern Baptist and American Baptist conventions. Instead of remaining independent, 
like the churches of the New Testament, they formed associations and fellowships. These new organizations have been infected by progressives, better called liberals, and are on the same road as the older organizations. The only organization that God left on this earth to carry on his work was the New Testament Church. Although the churches in the New Testament had fellowship together and cooperated in the mission's work of the time, they were all independent bodies with no head over them except the Lord Jesus Christ. When churches are tied together in an organization, it becomes political. Preachers want to be somebody in the group. As a result, compromise slowly creeps in. I know one fellowship of preachers that used to require that to be a member, you must believe in a local church only and no universal church. Over time, they removed this in order to get more members. Compromise on biblical precept is always wrong and the price will be paid. Let me change the subject and ask, who is responsible for training preachers? That responsibility belongs to the local church, not Bible colleges. Someone smarter than I am said, churches should not have Bible institutes, they should be Bible institutes. A Bible college, even if run by a local church, will want to grow into a large Bible college. When it starts attracting students from other churches, hiring professors, secretaries, and other support staff, it takes on a life of its own. It now needs students to pay the expenses. This will eventually cause it to compromise so that it can not only maintain itself, but grow larger. I ask you, to whom was the responsibility to train preachers given? To find the answer, let's look at what Paul told Pastor Timothy. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 It is the pastor's job to train faithful men for the work of God. There are great advantages to following God's method of training those who teach others. First of all, they will be a great benefit to the church where they are trained. They will be able to serve God and the church and in the process learn the practical aspects of ministry. Secondly, if God calls them to what we call full-time service, they won't need to spend four years or more in preparation. They will be ready to go immediately. Thank you, Bernard. That was very informative and I hope it will help our listeners to understand how we got to the desperate state we find ourselves today and what we need to do to get things back to where they need to be. What you have given us today should encourage us to get back to the Bible way of doing things. I agree that the boat needs to be rocked a bit. The Bible teaches that we are to keep our churches pure but today, most churches are a mixed multitude of saved and lost people. It ought not be that way. This is part of the reason baptism and the Lord's Supper were given as local church ordinances. Another important tool for keeping a church pure is church discipline. As you said, most churches don't practice real church discipline today because it is negative, and that goes against the prevailing winds of our day, 
which teach that everything should be positive. Jesus was a bit negative when he called the religious leaders of his day hypocrites, snakes, and whited sepulchres full of dead men's bones in the following passages. Matthew 23 verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Matthew 23 verse 33, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? How about Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians to correct the errors in that church? Would you call what he said positive? He was not afraid to name those like Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus, who taught false doctrine. He also named Demas for forsaking him, having loved this present world. Paul told Timothy to preach the word, and in doing so, he was to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The first two of these are definitely negative, and the last one, exhort, can be negative or positive. Preachers are not called to be positive, they are called to preach the truth, be it positive or negative. Until we are willing to follow the biblical principle of church discipline, we can never expect true revival, and revival is the only hope for this wicked world. That's all for today. Come back next week for more sound Bible teaching. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828 244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you, it's about God receiving the glory.